Hello and welcome to Plattress. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing A Perfect Equation by Elizabeth Everett. This was published in 2022 and is the second in the Secret Scientists of London series. And full disclosure, we did receive an advanced reader copy from Berkeley. So let's uh, start with the book jacket. How do you solve the perfect equation? Add one sharp-tongued mathematician to an aloof, handsome nobleman. Divide by conflicting loyalties and multiply by a daring group of women hell-bent on conducting their scientific experiments. The solution is a romance that will break every rule. Six years ago, Miss Letitia Fenley made a mistake, and she's lived with the consequences ever since. Readying herself to compete for the prestigious Rosewood Prize for Mathematics, she is suddenly asked to take on another responsibility, managing Athena's retreat, a secret haven for England's women scientists. Having spent the last six years on her own, Letty doesn't want the offers of friendship from other club members and certainly doesn't need any help from the insufferably attractive Lord Greycliffe. Lord William Hughes, the Viscount Greycliffe, cannot afford to make any mistakes. His lifelong dream of becoming the director of a powerful clandestine agency is within his grasp. Tasked with helping Letty safeguard Athena's retreat, Gray is positive that he can control the antics of the various scientists as well as manage the tiny mathematician, despite their historic animosity and simmering tension. As Gray and Letty are forced to work together, their mutual dislike turns to admiration and eventually to something magnetic. When faced with the possibility that Athena's retreat will close forever, they must make a choice. Will Gray turn down a chance to change history? Or can Letty get to the root of the problem and prove that love is the ultimate answer? I mean, you know, we're suckers for puns. So thanks for all of that. Yeah, that was fine. This isn't bad. It's not a bad jacket at all. It's just long. I feel like there's a lot of information in it. What I said, I, I lost the thread. What we were actually talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think I understand it. There's a lot of information in there. There's yeah. a lot. So I, I don't think it gives away very much, actually. But I think that's part of what makes it hard to follow, is it's yeah. trying so hard to say a lot without giving away anything that it gets a little bit vague. Yeah. Well, we had a lot of numbers to work with this week in our random number. So as usual, we generated a number between 1 and 50. And for this episode, that number is 39. And then we wrote our own summaries based on that number. So why don't you kick us off, Lane? Cousins become Eskimo brothers when an uptight aristocrat spy realizes a standoffish mathematician wasn't the world's greatest seductress at 17. Maintaining a safe space for lady scientists requires dismantling traditional structures and the patriarchy while giving in to carriage sex. I mean, nothing you said is inaccurate, but I'm not sure. So, so if you're long-time listeners, you do know that often our summaries are very similar. They're not this week. I'll just say that. Do you have a problem with anything I said? I just said that you were not incorrect with anything <laughs> that you wrote. <laughs> okay. What was your summary? Do you sometimes get depressed when you read about politics today? Well, so does the heroine of this book. The hero also gets depressed about them before the final page, 
Luckily, these super relatable characters also have hot sex. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. <laughs> That's what I have for you today. Well, they're both extremely accurate, but you're right. They're both extremely different. So take from that what you will. So one of the things I want to mention is that we have reviewed the first book in the series previously. And we had mixed feelings about it. We really liked the main couple. We really liked the premise. We really liked the writing style. But we felt like it got a little bit all over the place. And especially in the denouement. Yeah. The villainy and like all the characters who got introduced, it just sort of got away from itself. This yeah. is, I think, a much better book. Yeah, I I think the the first book we really liked the ideas, but the execution got a little muddled. And here, I think the execution matches the ideas. Yes. So, so that said, you know, the good writing and the narrative bigger than the romance is a th- theme that remains. And as Meg got out in her thirty nine word summary, some of it was a little tough. Yeah. You know, I will just, I'll admit here, I'll admit to all of you that I do not watch or listen to the news by choice any longer. Right. Because I, it really does depress me. And reading romance is a way to get away from that. I do like when romance grapples with a lot of the same issues that we are today. But this one cut very close to home. I'll just say that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So what are some of the tropes in this book? So I think the number one is enemies to lovers. Yeah. So Letty was um, engaged in a liaison with Gray's cousin. Gray and his family have subsequently publicly cut her and Mm -hmm. made her life extremely difficult. And his judgmental bullshittery has been particularly hard on her. So they do not like each other for a very decided reason when this book begins. However, Letty's best friend is also Gray's stepmother, and both of them love her and hold her in extremely high esteem. She was the heroine of the first book. And so they end up being paired together to run Athena's retreat while this woman and her husband go away for Mm -hmm. a period of time. And so they're working together out of love on this shared goal for their friend, but they are doing so with one another extremely reluctantly. Yes. I, I mean, we talked about this. It's so great when people who are attracted to each other but also hate each other have to work together, right? Right. It's, I mean, it's a classic for a reason because it's great, right? Well, it's also interesting because in her case, Athena's retreat is like extremely important to her. And in his Mm -hmm. case, it's extremely important to someone he loves, but he doesn't truly understand it or like care about Athena's retreat in the way she does. Right. He, I would say that he does care about the people at Athena's retreat, but he doesn't see the retreat itself Mm -hmm. as a retreat. He sees it more as like a foible almost. Right. So he is a spy, (laughs) a spy as in he works for the home office. It's not like a foreign spy, right? Has he been to foreign, like spied in foreign areas? I don't know. Maybe. I think it was implied, right? At the first book, he'd recently come back to the, uh, from the continent. 
Um, but of course, spies have to have problematic mentors slash father figures. I mean, I'm thinking of our favorite Hello Stranger. They're all of them. Every <laughs> book. With or even what's the series we're reading where like the spy master is the matchmaker? <gasps> yes. Yes, the Love and Let Spy series. Or the series where, like, every un- every time the uncle's been the bad guy. Or even, what's the one we just finished with the... the um, yes. Uh, Elizabeth Boyle's yeah. series where his spy master is her godfather and a father figure to him. Like, spy masters can never just be bosses. They yeah. either need to be, like, really problematic familial relations or father figures or bad guys. Or both. Yes. Or both. In many cases. He just leans in on that front because he is all the above. All of the above. Yeah. So uh, she is a lady scientist who publishes under a man's name. Yes. And part of the reason, so she's a lady scientist, so obviously she has to publish under a man's name. But she especially has to because she has an ex-lover who not only stole her reputation, was also stealing her work. Which we have seen before. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, not just in fiction, obviously. Not yeah. obviously, but anyway. And then on just the general romance novel front, you know, she was ostracized from society and her friends convinced her to make a grand entrance in a new dress. Mm-hmm. And of course, during that scene, he must claim the waltz. Of course. I will say this is something that carried over from the the first book in the series. So almost the same exact thing happens, right? She makes this entrance back in society with a nice new dress. And then she waltzes with the hero. Mm -hmm. But the only issue I have with both of these books is that there's just the one waltz that's supposed to be their reintroduction. And then they're like, okay, let's get out of here. Yes. All right. You've made the appearance. You've been publicly claimed by me. Right. But I mean, the thing is that these appearances are like built up to be like, you're going to be back in society. And then they're like, well, it halfway worked because I made a splash, but now I got to get out of here. <laughs> but then they immediately, small spoiler, have carriage sex. So it's perfect. It's Shut also, up. It also happened in book one, which. This is the best parts of book one without the worst parts of book one. <laughs> So true. This is very true. It's very Why true. are you complaining? I'm not. I'm not. Com- this was not a complaint. <laughs> I want to make it clear. No complaints about the carriage sex ever. All right. So I, I did really like the romance between the two of them. Honestly, the strength of this book, but what also made it difficult for me at times was the way it engaged with politics yeah that was also the hardest part to digest yeah I I don't know (laughs) I mean there's there's basically so just as an FYI there is an antagonist on the page it is not the antagonist it's not the problematic spy figure it's a politician a rising star who is affecting politics and, you know, basically waging a culture war in the Victorian era. 
And it was very hard for me to separate this character from the modern equivalent of Donald Trump. I mean, basically, when he was on the page, that's that's what I saw in my mind's eye. And it was very difficult for me to read those parts. I agree with that. And I also think it's interesting that the narrative sort of ended up concluding that the corrupt system by which the spy network operated as an old boys club had to be dismantled mm-hmm. to prevent someone like him from ever seizing power again. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing it didn't, so therefore implicitly the defense against people like that is democracy. Mm-hmm. And like, that didn't stop. Trump. <laughs> so I, a lot of this, and this is where I say a lot of this book was actually extremely stressful. Yes, yes, yes. Um, that's, that's what I mean as well is it is a romance. It does have a happily ever after. It does end on an, an uplifting note. But living in the times that we are living in and dealing with the things that we're dealing with, it it brought up a lot of things that have not concluded necessarily on a happy note, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what's difficult for me. Yeah. So anyway, I do really like that. <laughs> I do really like, oh my God. This is jumping way ahead, so I don't know if you, we would want to talk about it right now. But basically, Gray has a job that means a lot to him. His job is very important. He feels like he's making a difference in the world. He feels like it's his calling, really. Yeah. And he gives it up, basically, to support Letty. And I just love that very much. Well, he also gives it up to support her, but acknowledging that the system itself that he is a part of and that this job is a part of is what is disenfranchising her. Yes. Yes. But it's, it's, he only, it's, a, it it's, it's not, not like, just a, I'll be the stay at home dad to her working mom. Yes. It goes beyond that. Yep. Exactly. I don't I know. It. It, there, there, there are two kinds of like feminist romances and they are both valid and I like them both. Right. But one of them is, I'm going to give this up and support you. Or not even necessarily, I'll give this up and support you. But like, I've always wanted to be a stay-at-home dad, right? Right. So it's like, they're both very fulfilled. But then the other one is, I acknowledge that your job or your career is as fulfilling to you as mine is to me. And you are important to me. So I'm going to leave mine and leave what I consider to be my calling. Because your work is just as important or more than mine is. It's Yes. It's the difference between Dirty Rock and Parks and Rec and the I relationships. Never seen Thirty Rock. Okay. I so mean, it wasn't. I will just tell you. Part of that. I will just tell you, it's not my favorite. Thirty okay. Rock isn't my favorite. Parks and Rec is my favorite. I love Parks and Rec, but I just don't have the basis for comparison. Yeah, but anyway, if any of you guys have seen them both. It's the difference. And they're both, they're both fun. They're both great. And they both have these feminist relationships, but 30 Rock is more. I'm so happy. No, I get to be a stay at home dad. It's what I've always wanted to do. And Parks and Rec is, wow, I just got offered my dream job, but I'm going to move to fucking Indiana to be with you. Which I don't love anyone an Indiana amount. (laughs) I probably do. But I want him to love me that much. 
That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right. Anything else we should talk about? I don't know. Those were the most important parts for me. <laughs> I know we should probably talk about more. Yeah, I, I think that's the most important overall thematic element. I do think we need to delve a little bit more into the specifics of her past. Okay, yeah, let's talk about it. Because I think the way that they knew each other historically is really interesting. So she's new money. Mm-hmm. So this, it, this isn't just a class discussion in terms of like aristocracy versus the normals. Yeah. But there's also a, a class component from a more American sense of her being new money and therefore buying their way into polite society. And so Gray and his family are titled. Mm-hmm. And so you see this, her constantly being at the fringes of society and knowing that even with the best of reputations, she'd always be heavily judged. And because of her history with his cousin, she doesn't have the best reputation. And they weren't publicly compromised. Like, no one knows specifically what the charge levied against her is. But by basically cutting her in public, his family has tarnished her reputation completely, even without evidence, proof, or, like, public condemnation. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to see how these men are wielding this power over this 17-year-old girl. And I feel like the book does a really good job explaining it. So I'm not going to say it's like insufficiently explored. My only criticism, and we talked a lot about how the the first book, The Villain, was redeemed or like not redeemed successfully, but like presented sympathetically in a way we were extremely Mm -hmm. uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. I kind of felt the same here. Like not the overall bad guy that Meg was comparing to Trump, but the cousin who like burned Letty in the past, whose family successfully like cut her off, like. Gray uses this teaching opportunity to, like, make them treat her better in the future. But it's just, like, I don't think what they did to her is being treated as bad enough. Yeah. it's like, These aren't good people. Like, this exactly. guy who stole her work and her reputation, like, at the end feels bad that he spent the last six years fucking up her life? Yeah. Is that supposed to matter to me? Yeah. I, I mean, it's... I do think there's a, a slight... I don't know. I felt like there was a difference between the man who ruined her life and the father. Yes. Um, Because one is, okay, I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but one I feel like is sort of a youthful, like, I fucked up. But he wasn't necessarily the one who did that much damage to her reputation. But he was the one six years later on the stage presenting her own work in front of her. That's true. Yeah. But so anyway. I just, I think it's important. That was a really key element of this book. But the other thing I kind of want to talk about a little bit more is the development of their relationship. So okay. they start out really fucking hating each other. Yep. Him because he thinks she's, he is all about self-control. So this is trope. He had a severe debilitating medical disorder as a child that's like defined his entire existence. And we can get into the misdiagnosis and his misattribution of like his medical ailment and his recovery. Mm-hmm. at a later point but so he's he views self-control as like the most important thing and views her behavior with his cousin as not just inappropriate socially un- socially undecorous and sort of loose but also as evidence that she does not have self-control which is mm-hmm. like the biggest thing he can d- condemn and she hates him for like hating her basically yeah. and being part of this patriarchal system which is oppressing her not just as a person in the social construct but like doesn't want her to do math 
Well, but also not basically not taking her word for it, not yes. even letting her speak for herself. Yes. Right. All he got was one side of the story and he never even cared to come to her to find out what the real answer was or even think about it logically, which is his whole shtick is like, right. I'm Mr. Logic. Right. Right. That said, like, this is where Gray should know better because he knows his cousin's character. He should know better because he's a thinking person as well. Right. That said, there are people in my life who I don't need the other side of the story. Yeah. So, like, I'm a little bit less inclined to condemn him on that front. He didn't know her other than through. It's not like it was she was a person of equal worth in his eyes, not because she's a woman, because he's his cousin, and this is a random girl on the back porch. I mean, yes, yes and no. I don't know. I just feel like, anyway. Clearly, time revealed he needed to think harder about it. His behavior mm-hmm. in that exact moment, taking his cousin's side, you, you can sort of get. It's the fact that this has proceeded for six years. Correct. Exactly. Yes. So, um, but I, I loved them slowly melting toward one another because it was not all at once. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of fun because at first there was obviously that I'm attracted to you, but I hate you. What is wrong with me? Right. And I loved the way that additional elements of vulnerability were exposed to one another. Mm-hmm. And then I did get a little frustrated at the trope. He just loves not for him. But ultimately, that was only a conflict for such a short period of time that I was like, okay, whatever. I mean, yes, but I will say in many books, this is the conflict because apparently this is a conflict. At least in this case, he sort of had a reason. So I also gave it more of a slightly more of a pass just because like literally for more than half of his life, he has been taught that all emotion is bad. Yes. So he's been trying to suppress like every emotion, not just love, but like anger or happiness or excitement, any emotion. And so that's why I was like, okay, like it's dumb, but I did. This is what I gave him a pass for, apparently. But those, I think those cover the high points of this book. Wait, we forgot one other thing that is amazing, which is that. Elizabeth Everett also takes on the defense of the romance novel in this book. Yes, it's so good. It's it's like the grand gesture lane. I was so into it. Correct. I have nothing other. Yes, just read this for the ending. I I don't want to give it away. I will simply say that that she is not only a mathematician, she also likes reading romance novels, which... Duh, we're all out here, right? (laughs) (laughs) Who does that? I don't know. And they read it in a carriage together. Like, in a group. They're not alone. They're not alone. This isn't isn't the sexy carriage part. Although, I'm going to be honest. Elizabeth, if you want to write this in the future, if they want to read the romance novel and, like, maybe reenact it in the carriage, I'm here for it. No need to credit us. No, you no, you don't have to credit me. Just free ideas. Free ideas. Totally. Just take it, write it. I want to read it. Okay. Um, and they were like, they're totally making fun of it. The dudes in the carriage are making fun of it. The women are like, guys, like, stop making fun of books. And then it comes out later that he may have been reading it on his own. 
That is all. It's pretty good. <laughs> it was also, great. Also, props to Elizabeth Everett just because we bring it up. The next book was clearly telegraphed, but also not in a yes. way that I found annoying. Yes, not in a way I found annoying. Also, not what I was really afraid of from the first book. So yep. I'm all about reading this next book. Yep. I'm already excited. So any, you know, content warning, trigger warning, disclaimers, things people should be aware of? I mean, there's kind of, uh, there's kind of a lot. Um, so, I mean, there's slut shaming. It's a huge part. It's just because of Letty's past. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, I do not mention this as a content warning, but I'm just going to put it out there because it did kind of get to me, which is that the patriarchy is like, a looming character in this book. Yep. So just be aware of that. You know, if you are not in a headspace to be dealing with it, you might want to hang on a month or two before you read this one. Or like after November. Um, another thing just to put out there, there is a brief mention of a side character's miscarriage. Mm-hmm. And, and then- I will it's uh-huh. not just, for all that it's a side character, it's not just a stated fact and then written off. It is something right. a couple is struggling with, and that struggle is depicted. Yeah. It's very emotional. It's very emotional. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, and then we mentioned this earlier, but Gray has a medical condition that was misdiagnosed and mistreated. Right. Like, so he had seizures as a child, and apparently the typical diagnosis back then was like weakness of character. Yeah. Um, and also something that the person who believed in him, in spite of the medical diagnosis, convinced him it could only be conquered through force of will. Right. And so when the seizures went away naturally before he became an adult, he and his father figure have been convinced that what killed the seizure was his lack of emotions. Right. So even like the non-medical community who believed in him still managed to fuck him up on this one. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's the thing too. It's like, that's, that's the whole thing with love, right? Like if you believe that you fall in love, you're going to start having like epileptic seizures again. Yeah. <laughs> I could, I could kind of understand why you'd be like, Oh shit, I'm falling in love. Right. Like that makes no sense, but he doesn't know that. Right. I actually was like, okay, I feel for you. The twist, though, as to why he was feeling so shitty at the end was pretty great. Uh, yes, it was. All right. Uh, sexiness. We already talked about it. There is carriage sex in this book. It's excellent. They also make out up against the wall and then have sex up against the wall, too. Yep. Different occasions, guys. Um, their kisses are always perfect as well. It was just extremely hot. It was very hot. Um, we talked about this in the first book, too, because we were like, strength of this book. <laughs> Sexual chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> they are real hot for each other, and it's real great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So definitely a sexy book. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> um, only other thing I want to mention, because, like, I could rave about the particulars of the sex scenes, but just read this book. There is no epilogue. And I actually really liked that. Right? I know. Like, these weren't characters where, like, I didn't feel like the one year later was going to add anything. Yeah. I agree with you. I, you know what? I don't, 
I don't think there was an epilogue in the first book either. Yeah, but the first book, I'm not going to lie, I got so pissy at the ending that a lot of that, like, I blacked out. (laughs) Yeah. And I also wasn't thinking, oh, yay, no epilogue. I didn't want anything more because I wanted a lot to be very different. Whereas this one, it was like, the traditional romance novel epilogue of The Wedding Day was not nearly as significant here as him standing up to his family and her getting mathematical recognition. And I also loved that it wasn't like, and she gave the best proof to ever proof. Yes. Although that, God, yes. It was, but it was also very frustrating because of why. Right, but I did read the afterward. I know. (laughs) And the the math thing she's working on this book wasn't actually solved in real life until 1997. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that it also wasn't like an out of time discovery that, you know, she's working on something that everybody is slowly making progress toward, but what wouldn't be solved for more than a hundred years? Yeah. I mean, it does remind me of, of what you said about Mr. Impossible, about how you love that Daphne didn't actually translate the, the hieroglyphics. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I liked it. It was still, I don't know patriarchal there was the the patriarchy had a hand in it that's all i'll say it's all i'll say thank you so much for listening we'd love it if you would rate review subscribe check us out around the internet anywhere you can find plot trysts